Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're tackling a subject that is not foreign to any of you in Indian country, but again, like so many of the topics we discuss, it transcends any cultural boundaries. We're speaking today about grief. How do we deal with loss? And we've got someone who is really, truly an expert in the field. His name is Richard Ballow. Richard, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, David. It's great to be on. Richard, really, in my mind, you're the best of experts because many times in circles when we speak about an expert, it's someone who's got a bunch of degrees, but you have the experience, the practical experience of having gone through grief on many occasions and actually now helping people with it. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, the journey began into grief with my wife's diagnosis of cancer. And she fought it for four years before she passed away, leaving me a widow at the age of 40 with uh, three young children. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, I think that's probably one of any parent's nightmares that uh, the spouse that you love is going to somehow be out of the picture and you'll just be uh, on your own. Exactly. We were looking forward to a long life, having grandchildren and all that. And with her death, that thought and that life just vanished. So speak to someone who's dealing with that right now. They've lost a loved one, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a a close family member. How did you come through that? Well, I came through it in a couple of different ways, and one was to write about it because I've always written. Getting my thoughts out on paper helped me get it out of my head, Mm. but also with support groups. So tell us about that support groups. A lot of people, they hear about them. Maybe they've stuck their head in before. I've had patients, for example, who said they've showed up at a support group and they found it anything but supportive. Uh, I'm assuming that your experience was different because you said it helped you. Right. It was different. I went to my local hospice to their grief support group, and I could identify with other people. I thought I was alone. Mm. But here were people who were going through the same thing as I was. It was very refreshing in in a sense. What's so fascinating to me about the story already is you're speaking about your own grief, but now you're telling us that one of the things that encouraged you were other people that were suffering as well, that you actually came together and supported one another. Right, because we're we're all different ages. I was only 40 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet people there were in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but yet we were all experiencing the loss of a loved one and changing in our life, in our lifestyle, too. You know, one of the things I've noticed about grief, Rich, is that many people discount the support of other people because they say, well, your experience is not like mine. Uh, you know, I'm only 40. You, you don't understand what it's like to lose a, a spouse. And, and then the 90-year-old says, hey, I was married for 75 years or 65 years or whatever it was. 
and uh, you don't know what it's like. Is there that dynamic uh, that sometimes creeps into a, a setting like that? Uh, yes, it does creep in. But the way I look at it, that's the basic fundamental and core of grief. We're all dealing with lonely, the feelings of loneliness, abandonment, rejection, and feeling totally alone mm. in the other issues that you named as either an 80-year-old or a 40-year-old. It's sort of the surrounding and secondary issues from the grief. It's more of our life circumstances. Mm-hmm. So tell us some more about um, just how that all plays out in a, in a group. Well, for me, it was going into a group of about um, 20 people. We would start off by saying who we were and who we lost, mm-hmm. which was very difficult because I had to say who I lost. And, you know, if I said it, I could hear it and had to accept my own voice of what happened. And that mm. sort of started off on a real sort of, I guess, a sour note, a hurtful note. Mm-hmm. But it was just the way it was. And then we, the moderator would start talking about different issues. How are you feeling? How are you coping with day-to-day skills, cooking, the house, the checkbook, all those other life issues that can be very difficult for one who is grieving to attend to. So a support group can indeed be just that, can support you through a difficult time. But no doubt there were specific skills that came out of that experience. Help someone who may be in a very rural setting. I mean, we have people on reservations. They may be listening to the show today. There may not be a grief support group anywhere accessible to them. Are there certain lessons that you can communicate to them just by way of this show that could help them? Well, I guess one re- one thing would be to, in the grief, we still have to accept it in order to deal with it. Hmm. You know, speaking it, writing it, helps get it out of our own self. And to know that even if they're alone, they're still part of a wider group of people who are dealing with this and they deal with it every single day. So that's one thing, is to say that they're not alone, and that there are other people out there, and they can sort of identify with that and maybe even take some comfort with that. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to trivialize the subject, but in medical circles, when we speak about grief, grief doesn't only apply to actually losing a loved one. We sometimes talk about anticipatory grief, And that's where, for example, four years before you lose your wife, she gets the diagnosis of cancer. There's already a grieving process that's beginning. Someone gets a diagnosis of diabetes, and maybe everyone in their family with diabetes has had an amputation or been on dialysis. The person starts to to grieve prior to actually having what we would say is the fully developed loss. They're already anticipating losing things. So I say I don't want to trivialize the dialogue, but my my point is it seems like at any point in time, whether someone's dealing with a severe loss like you're sharing with us, Rich, or whether someone is dealing with some of these fears or anticipatory griefs, it almost seems like grieving is is part of the human experience. Well, I would think so, David, because we are, we do have this thing in common that we are alive, we live, we have anticipation and dreams. And when somebody 
the diagnosis, it shifts what we were thinking about our lives would be and turns it in a different direction. So now we're grieving for the old thoughts in life that we thought we were having, and now we have to deal with a new direction, a new life, and it's all brand new. Because grief is brand new to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's that loss of the former life that we could fully be in. And now we can't fully be in this new direction yet. We have to adjust. What is remarkable to me about your story is we're starting out speaking about loss. We're speaking about grief. And yet you have taken not only this first loss that you're telling us about, I know there's more to your story, but you have turned that into what some people would call a mission, other people might call it a ministry, other people might call it a labor of love, but you're making an effort as a speaker, as a writer, to help other people who are struggling. So out of your pain, you've in a sense joined with me and my colleagues as a healer. Do you see that as part of your role? I do, because when I've gone out to to speak with people, after I've spoken, they come up to me and they thank me for letting them know that they're not going crazy. And two, I had a couple of ladies come up at one talk that said, you're our hero. Hmm. And I'm saying, why am I your hero? She said, because you didn't get married immediately after your wife died. So they were expressing their own concerns and thanking me to to validate what they were thinking. Uh Tell us a little bit about that dynamic. Um, Why do you sense that they were so appreciative of that, and and what was your own experience as far as remarriage? Well, my experience in remarriage is that I had, I guess I'd say a lot of issues that I had around the grief, and I felt I had dealt with them over the years. But different issues kept coming up, so I kept working on it until it got to a point where I felt, you know, I'm ready to marry again. I'm ready to give. I'm ready to love. And when you're grieving, you really can't give a love Mm. until you heal. And so it was 20 years after my first wife died that I remarried. My kids were all grown. Her daughter was grown. And just our backgrounds meshed, and we have a lot of fun together, a lot of laughter. So what you're telling us is that life goes on, that there can be healing, there can be joy, and yet that doesn't have to happen uh, the day or the week or the month after the loss. In fact, it probably can't. Am I hearing you right? Yes, that's correct. Because I think people who are older when they lose a spouse, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, I think they tend to get married sooner. Mm-hmm. Where I was only 40, with children, I didn't have that need to marry as quickly. I was looking for it, but I wasn't ready for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. So let's talk to someone right now. They have just lost a spouse. They're feeling this void. Uh, they're not used to being all alone in the house. Maybe they are older. There are no children or grandchildren in the home. And they have uh, a sense of urgency to have another person they're sharing their life with. What are some things that should temper their enthusiasm for jumping into another relationship? Well, I think one thing would be 
to be, I guess you have to watch out for who that person is and what they're looking for and what their temperament is mm. and their understanding of the grief situation. Some people cannot accept someone who's grieving or children or their lifestyle. There are so many of those issues that come into play with a new widowed person that it's okay to be friends and as long and to look for shared commonality of values. I think that's one of the most important things because if you share a common set of values and outlook, it makes the relationship easier. It could lead to that marriage and happiness. So what I hear you saying, Rich, is if you're feeling a lack in your life, don't necessarily look to immediately fill it in the form of marriage or some kind of more permanent relationship like that, but try to identify some one individual or several people who have shared values and start investing time and, and maybe some other relationships. Is that one of the messages? Uh, yes, it is, because you can have a good time and get some relief from the grief by just sharing time with somebody with similar interests and values. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be two marriage or two that one thing, especially in the beginning. Now, you're a writer by training. You're a journalist. You've been writing about grief and grieving. You have a number of books, is that correct, that relate to this theme? Yes, that's correct. So tell us a little bit about those. Uh, Well, my first book is called Life Without Lisa, and that is my personal story of my journey through grief and overcoming the majority of it. Mm -hmm. And then I have two journals that I've produced called The Heart of Grief Relief and The Unbounded Heart of Grief Relief. And these are journals for people to express their grief through either writing or drawing. Hmm. Because any type of creativeness in getting grief out is worth it. And then my most recent book, which came out at the end of last year, is called Bullets and Babies. It's, about, it's a true story of a woman who was shot and paralyzed by her husband and then abandoned her and the poor children. Wow. Wow. We have got to talk more. You've got a lot of great material. We want to dive into some of these books, get some of the take-home points, some of the insights. We're talking about grief. I'm talking with Richard Ballow. He's an internationally recognized speaker and writer, and he is staying by. I encourage you to do the same because we've got a lot more coming up on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. couple of minutes, and we will be back with more on this important topic. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been prerecorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it. But it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments. 
but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose, your host. With me, my guest, Rich Ballow. Richard Ballow is an author. He's a speaker. He's been making a difference in people's lives who are facing tragedy, people who are dealing with grief. He's been sharing his own story with us. And, Rich, it's, uh, it's really great uh, that you were willing to take your time today and join us. Well, thank you, David. I'm willing to be here. Now, before we get uh, too much more into the topic, we had mentioned at the close of the last segment some of the great resources you have as far as dealing with grief. You're the author of a number of books, and I know you've got a significant web presence. If someone wants to connect with you, maybe learn more about your books, how would they do that? Well, they could go to my website, which is richardballow.com, and that tells you more about, about me and the books that are available. Uh, my book's available at tolmanmainpress.com. And um, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Okay. So it's Richard Ballow, B-A-L-L-O, correct? Correct. Okay. And if I remember Richard Ballow, just richardballow.com is an easy place to start. So, Rich, let's come back to this uh, dialogue. I think you got us all interested in your most recent book, this story of a young woman. I believe her name was Janice Riddle and the tragedy that happened to her. Tell us a little bit more about that. I've learned about Janice, and she was a a teenage mother, gave birth at 16 to her first child, three children by 19. But she was a very happy woman, and she enjoyed and loved being a mother. But her first husband was abusive, so she divorced him, had another baby with husband number two. His name was Ron. And they were sort of having troubles in their marriage, but she knew that they could reconcile. So they met one night. She was 32 years of age. The children were 15 to 7 years old. And she and Ron met at a bar. They were drinking, playing pool, 
they met a guy who um, had a gun collection. They figured, well, let's go look at the guns. So they went, and Janice picked up a, a pistol. She may have caught the trigger. She's not quite sure, but she put it down. And as she was searching for a cigarette in her purse, she heard the bang and felt the thump to her chest. And she looked up, and there was her husband. He looked startled, and he had the gun, and he put it down. And he basically shot her, but he didn't want to admit it. And the only thing she knew was that suddenly she felt pins and needles rushing up her legs, up into her throat, and she screamed out, and then things went black for her. Wow. So presumably this was an accident that he shot her? Yes, she believes it was an accident, he believes it was an accident, and the police also believed it was an accident. So uh-huh. there were no charges ever filed. So she's shot, she passes out, what happens from there? Well, when she wakes up, she sees a ceiling, the hospital ceiling, and she doesn't really know what's happening. And, of course, she feels very tired. Ron comes into her sight. And he relays what happened about the shooting. They rushed to the hospital and all that. And the doctor comes in and explains that the shot, it was a 22 caliber, that it entered her left chest through her lung, hit the shoulder blade, ricocheted to her right lung, ricocheted again, and went into her throat and severed her spine. I think about the... um, six or seven level. Wow. So her functions from below the waist, she didn't have any functions and a little bit of her nerves in her hands. So she wakes up to a reality that she's most likely going to be paralyzed. Wow. And is that how things played out over time with her recovery? Did she ever have much use of her arms, let alone her legs? Uh, She had use of her arms. Her legs, she didn't have use of. But through rehabilitation, she was able to maneuver herself in the wheelchair, scoot from the wheelchair to the bed, bed to the wheelchair, to chairs, to cars. And she even learned to drive again with hand wheels. Uh-huh. So she, you know, didn't want to be paralyzed and was very depressed. It's almost like grief. I mean, she lost who she was. Right, right. So she had to adjust to a whole new lifestyle, a new way of being. And, of course, that caused major depression, and she was on antibiotics, not antibiotics, um, antidepressants. Uh-huh. And she realized or came to the conclusion that she would kill herself, that she thought she would be better off dead. Wow. Yeah, she, she, she attempted suicide. So basically, let me see if I've got this narrative, because you alluded to some things that um, I'm just filling in the dots here. So she and Ron were having a shaky relationship before this happened. I'm assuming from something you mentioned earlier that at some point in her healing process, uh, or at least her hospitalization and, and the aftermath of that, Ron disappears from the picture, is that right? Not immediately. I mean, he sort of sticks work with her through the rehabilitation. Okay. But because the police investigated a shooting, they found out he had a warrant open 
So he went to jail. He was in jail while she was in rehabilitation. Ah. But they wrote to each other all the time, confessing their love. But it was several weeks after she returned home that he started drinking again and told her that he couldn't look at her knowing that he put her in the wheelchair. He couldn't overcome his guilt. So he, he just left the scene. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the hardest, I think, things for any relationship when there is some kind of uh, serious injury, a death. I know often we hear about parents grieving for a child, even if neither one of those parents was responsible for the death of the child. Uh, one or the other often somehow blames the other, you know, if you'd been there, or done something different, or if I'd done something different. And many relationships don't survive these traumatic experiences. Do you have any insight into that as you've dealt with this situation and others? I have some, only because what you're saying is true. There's something between the, the couple that blames the other one or they can't see IOI or one feels the other one should be recovered sooner, which I hear a lot of. I deal a lot with childhood drowning, mm. and I can see that in people. It's like, even if they're not responsible, they need somebody to blame. Mm. They need somebody to help heal the pain. This is an interesting statement. They need someone to blame. I haven't heard anyone put it that way before. To tell us a little bit more about that. If somebody, let's say, a child drowns, it's like, whose fault is it? Sometimes, as human beings, we can't accept the fact that accidents just happen. Mm -hmm. That there has to be a reason for it, and the reason usually is associated with the person. Mm. So with couples who lose a child, it's like, why did this happen? They blame themselves, they blame the other person. You know, if you were looking, if you had done this or done that. And I think that gets intensified, and one of the one of the couples can't accept the constant blame of the other one or the insinuation of that. This is very insightful because grief, although it's painful in and of itself, there are often innocent bystanders who become uh, casualties as well. I think that's true because if you think of a pebble that's dropped in a pond of water, the most impact is right at the center, and that's the most traumatic event. Mm -hmm. But as the waves work their way away from the center, they get smaller and smaller. So each ring are people that are the closest and then the farthest away, and you never know who's going to be there to be hit by those waves. Mm. It's just an, an example, quickly, is that there's a recent story about the Southwest Airline, that the engine exploded, the fragment went through the window, halfway sucked the woman out of the plane. She was killed and, and died. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty tragic. But, you know, I don't know anything. I don't know the person. Mm -hmm. And then, then I learned about the person who was, she was a very philanthropic person, very helpful in the community. And then to find out that good friends of my wife and mine that we know, it was the man's daughter. Really? Really. And it's like, 
oh my, we know those people. And just the grief we feel for them to lose a child like that. Mm. There is so much tragedy, there is so much pain, and you're giving a message that there is healing. I know we want to hear more about Janice Riddle because I'm assuming her story didn't end with an attempted suicide. Is that correct? That's correct. So we want to hear more about that. We also want to hear more about some of the practical things that we can do to help ourselves as we deal with uh, real losses and anticipated losses. We're talking with Richard Ballow. Richard is an author. He's a motivational speaker. He's been sharing his own story of grief and healing, as well as stories that have touched him from the lives of others. His website, richardballow.com. More to come on this edition of American Indian Living. We're back with our second half of the show right after this. Stay tuned for more. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose, we're speaking about grief, about challenges in life when it comes to the subject of loss. Richard Ballow is my guest. He's an author. He's a 
speaker, but he's not just that. He is someone who has experienced a lot in his own life. We perhaps will tell more about his story. But before we do, Richard, we want to talk a little bit more about your latest book. It's called Bullets and Babies, A True Story of Love, Violence, and the Spirit to Live. It's the story of Janice Riddle. You've been telling us some about Janice, this horrific accident where her uh, husband, Ron, shoots her. She ends up in rehab. Her husband ends up in prison for other reasons, and uh, they can't reconcile because of some issues that you've already gone into. Uh, Ron just feeling uh, so guilt-stricken, can't deal with the presence of his wife. What happens from there? Well, he goes out one night, and then he doesn't return, and Janice is frantic. And he, she finally tracks him down, and she, he says, I can't look at you in a wheelchair knowing that I did that. Wow. He doesn't come home, and she starts drinking to help soothe herself, but she feels that she's going to just end her life. She has the pills and that. So she arranges to have the children out of the house that evening. She wheels herself into her bedroom, scoops herself in the bed, and she's, she's ready to take the pills and stuff, but she hears her name called out. Hmm. And she really didn't want to hear her voices. So she turns on the TV, and there was a prayer show on. It said, if you ever thought life wasn't worth living, give us a call. And she said it just floored her. Hmm. That came on. So from then on, she was determined to live her life and be the best mother she could and the best housekeeper she could from a wheelchair. And through the years, Raising the children, she basically did as much as she could and accepted the help of her children, too. Because there were difficult ages, but um, that's what she did. She did that as long as she could. I guess that probably came to the point where about 20 years later, her rotated cuffs on her shoulders gave out. Mm. And Janice had this great view on life. She said, yes, the shooting changed my life. But losing my shoulders ruined it hmm. because she lost her independence. Uh-huh. She couldn't. She couldn't get from the bed to the chair, from the chair to the car, because her shoulders just wouldn't allow her to do that, and she was basically bedridden. Wow! And how old is she at this point? Well, she has passed on. She lived to be about sixty-three. Uh huh. So she was in her fifties when she lost the shoulders. Uh-huh. And one of the amazing things is that she really loved Ron and tried to keep in touch with him. But about, at one point, he kept bringing up this affair she had while they were separated. Uh-huh. And she got so angry, she said, don't ever call me again. And she didn't hear from him for seven years. Until one Christmas, she picked up the phone, called him to see if he was alive. And he was, and he was sober, and he wanted to come back into her life and make amends. And she forgave him for shooting him and loved him, and he loved her, and it was like sort of like that storybook ending, almost. But it was, I don't know, it's just the way she handled life and how she forgave him and still loved him, mm. and how he transformed his life and came back to love her and help her, even in their... In, I guess they were in their early 60s when that happened, and he was, you know, suffered the 
alcoholism for many, many years and tried to help her as much as he could, but he was always in her life for the next five years until she passed away. And then three months later, he passed away. Wow. An amazing story for sure. It is, and that's what drew me to her and to her story and want to write it. Because it was just so amazing, and I liked her spirit and outlook on life. One of the things that struck me, and I'm sure many of my listeners, uh, was this story about her wanting to take her life. This voice she heard, I'm assuming her explanation was it was something supernatural because there wasn't anyone there in the room? Correct. And then the fact that she turned on the television and there was some type of program that was really speaking directly to her uh, just uh, uh, makes you think there's clearly something more to this life than just what plays out on the human realm, isn't there? Yes, yes there is, and I know Janice truly believed that, because she could see it working throughout her life and what saved her from many accidents before that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she truly believed that. I was very thankful for that. So we come back to this topic of grief, and one of the take-home lessons that I'm uh, walking away with is basically, Rich, we can go through some terrible things. We can lose a loved one. We can lose function. Our relationships can be damaged, uh, apparently beyond repair. But one of the messages that that I hear is don't give up. Uh, Keep pressing forward. And some of the things that look irreparable today, there may be healing in the future. Is that too optimistic a view to take in the midst of some of these tragedies? Well, it's not too optimistic to me because I've seen it play out in the midst of the real grief, like that first year or two, it would be hard to accept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for me, being in that situation where I was just in my early 40s, I said, okay, I've got two kids. If I want to live again, if I want to love again, I need to work at this. I need to deal with my issues. And like you said, there's there are certain things that come along that we have no clue of that can help us, help us turn our lives around or go around that corner to see something that will be really beneficial for us. It just always amazes me. So let's speak about this uh, this topic of working through issues. You've advocated already on this show the value of writing. People likely are saying, many of my listeners are saying, well, hey, I mean, the guy's a journalist, he's a trained writer, but what about me? I'm not a writer. How do you respond to that type of criticism? Can anyone benefit from exercising those creative juices, even if they don't feel like they've been endowed with many of them? Yes, there are many, many benefits. Because you don't have to write for publication. You write only for yourself mm-hmm. to help understand what emotions you're going through, to see if there are patterns in your life, or what steps could be taken to correct it or tweak it to make it more understandable and acceptable in your life. And yeah, I encourage people to write, and it's, it doesn't matter what they write. They can write the same word over and over and over again if they want to, but they just need to get it out of them. They don't have to worry about punctuation or spelling. You know, as a writer who writes for publication, I have to worry about 
punctuation, mm-hmm. spelling, and all that. Mm-hmm. But if I wasn't going to be published, just write, write it out. Don't matter about punctuation, sentence formation, whether it's clear to anybody else, as long as it's clear to you and it makes sense to your world and what you're going through. So yeah, anybody can write, and they can get it out there and just do that. It will help because it's the mind and the eyes and the physical activity. So you're exercising all three in a creative process, which helps liberate the mind in, in getting things out. And once they're on paper, you can see them and deal with them. You don't have to keep running them around your brain all the time. So let me see if I understood correctly. When we were speaking about tools or resources earlier in the show, you mentioned that you have a variety of books that deal with this topic. We've spoken about your first book, Life Without Lisa, which is your own story. We've talked about your most recent book, Bullets and Babies, that chronicles the story of Janice Riddle, who we've spoken about. But you've got a couple of other books sandwiched in there. Am I understanding those books are tools that people can use to help in this journaling process? Yes, there are. And there, there are two of them. The first one is called The Heart of Grief Relief. And it's a lined journal with quotes on every page so that a person can write their experiences down. They can look at the quotes and think about them and see if those help their life or their thoughts and write what they feel like on those thoughts. And in the back of the book, there are articles about grieving, how universal it is, how journaling helps, and how to deal with some of those days that, like the holidays that come around. My wife, first wife, passed away a week before Christmas. Mm-hmm. How do they make Christmas or Valentine's Day or Mother's Day better and different for myself and my children? So those things are in that book. And the other one is The Unbounded, which is very similar, except that there are no lines on the page, because some people would rather draw instead of get the words out. Mm. And I've used drawing, too, to represent what I'm feeling and get it out and even realize I'm probably in a pretty low place from drawing skeletons and stuff. Okay. But there, yeah, there are tools that do help. So basically, if I were to pick up the book The Heart of Grief Relief... And I were to open that up, I, I'm, I'm just really asking a question because I'm assuming the answer is in the book, but I'm saying, well, what do I write about? Do you, do you have some kind of prompts or do you ask questions to stimulate people to write? Well, there are quotes on the page that can act as prompts or stimulate stimulants for the thought process. But if it would just say, just write whatever you're thinking about at the time. Hmm. Because that will just help the writing process. Just There's no pressure in writing. It's just, write what you're thinking about. I'm sitting at a desk. Okay, I'm sitting at a desk. Why? And just keep asking yourself, why or what am I feeling? Mm-hmm. What am I thinking? Hmm. And so basically, it's not saying to focus on grief. It's saying kind of focus on your internal dialogue and the grief will surface in that? Exactly, David. That's exactly what it is. Because as you write, it will come out eventually, because it's in your daily life. Wow, very interesting stuff. You've brought up a very, very important topic, and we can't finish the show without jumping into it, and that's how to deal with these very, 
very important anniversaries, birthdays, holidays. I'll just tell you, as a physician, when I see people, it's not uncommon. I just had a patient in the office not long ago, and uh, she was quite tearful. She said, you know, this is the anniversary of my mother's death. Uh, How do you deal with those kind of situations. We want to talk about that, Rich, but we do have to step away for just one more break in today's show. Before we do that, though, if someone can't stay by us, they can't finish the show with us, give us one more time your website. Uh, The website is www.richardballow.com. And Richard, if they go there, in addition to getting information about your books, are there free resources there, helpful things that that might be of assistance to folks? Uh, There are some links to other websites that deal with grief. There are also articles about specific issues in grieving, such as, well, what now do I do with my wedding ring, Mm. certain memories, and some holidays. Great, great. Okay, that's all at richardballow.com. Richard's going to give us more of those tips when we come back. Don't go away. One more segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. Dr. David DeRose back with you on today's edition of American Indian Living. My guest, Rich Ballow. Rich has been sharing his own journey as well as the journey of others through that process that seems so human and so applicable to every one of us. It is the process of grief and grieving. Rich, we haven't talked a lot about your own experience other than the loss of Lisa, but you've had many other losses, significant losses along the way, haven't you? And each of those times, you have been resilient enough to come back and to say, listen, I have things to share. You're sharing with us right now. We so appreciate that. And one of the things we were hoping to especially get into are anniversaries and holidays. Are there right and wrong ways to deal with that uh, as you go through the grieving process? No, there's no right or wrong way. It's only your way of dealing with it because we are so unique in how we celebrate holidays or anniversaries. It's really up to the individual about what they do and their customs. Mm-hmm. You know, after my wife died, which was close to Christmas, when Mother's Day came around, the boys and I went to the pier and threw roses in. So that mm-hmm. was the first year. Mm-hmm. The next year, we went out for dinner, had cake. It just got to be a different type of expression of that holiday to remember their mother by until it came to a point where, and I even thought this sounded crazy to me in the beginning, is that I can remember who she is and what she was like, but the day-to-day living fades away after years Mm. because they're not in our life every day. So that changes the holidays and routines and anniversaries because she's not there any longer. It's just us, and we have to come up with our own new way of doing things, things that make sense for us in the time that we're living. Now, sometimes we look at different, well, different ways of going through grief, different ways of looking at loss, and then over the years there have been many experts, psychologists who've tried to shed light on all the things that happen in the grieving process. I can remember years ago uh, the work of Dr. Kubler-Ross, who's you know well-known in, in medical and in mental health circles. And I think there's a tendency, whether you're speaking about a certain researcher or a certain model of grieving, that early on as people talked about grief in the medical community, it was something that you went through and then you were done with it. But I think everyone realizes that grieving is not necessarily a linear process. Like we've been saying, things come up, bring back the memory of that loved one. You're missing them. At certain times, that loss can seem very acute, even though maybe many years ago. At other times, like you're saying, it it may seem that the person has been gone for so long, they're not really a part of your life. Here's my question, Rich. There are certain things that um, can help us in this process. We've been talking about some of them. But are there certain things that can be obstacles to healthy grieving? Obstacles to healthy grieving. I think there are, and that would be not wanting to accept the loss, Mm. not wanting to deal with the grief, and wanting to hold on to those good old days every day and we're going towards a new future anyway. It's like 
don't know if this makes sense, David, but you know, I stubbed my toe like three weeks ago, my little toe. Mm-hmm. You know, the black and blue and all of that. But it's feeling better. But it doesn't hurt me all the time. But I can recall the pain when I stubbed it. And I can recall it at any time. But I'm still but I'm living life now pain free. And I think grief is something like that. If we have grief, it becomes part of our life. We don't have to live with the pain every day. But we can recall it at any time. Mm-hmm. So it can actually I've gone back to those that grief even twenty years later, to the point where I'm so hurt that I cry over it. But I don't live it every day. It's not my reality. I'm living life, I'm working, I'm remarried, I have aging parents, children who are growing up, grandchildren. All these things push the grief and the thoughts of grief and those feelings into the background, mm-hmm. into our history. It's still a part of us. But it's more of a historical context now than the actual event that it was. I appreciate that perspective because I'm thinking of a patient right now that I have who lost a spouse, I want to say, eight years ago. And uh, it seems that this individual, whenever they come in the office, their their dialogue is always focused on this individual who's not been a part of their life for, for many, many years and it strikes me that perhaps they've not been able to do what you're sharing, and that is be in the present, not continue to dwell on the loss, not continue to think about that toe that you stubbed, uh, you know, eight, ten, twelve months ago or two years ago, because you can go on with living, right? Exactly. I mean, the trauma—it's an event that takes place in our life. But it's not a life sentence. We don't have to be stuck in that. And I see people who do get stuck by the death of a loved one, rejection of a job or a girlfriend or a spouse or a divorce. Mm-hmm. It happens, but we don't have to live like it's happening to us every single day. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that is such a great message. I think in one place you said uh, trauma is an event, not a life sentence, like you said. And uh, I think that's such a powerful concept because so many times, I think especially if we had something that we perceive was good, whether it's a relationship, like you said, whether it's a job, whether it's a certain living situation, when we lose that, it's easy to, well, basically describe our situation presently in what we don't have rather than with what we have, right? Yeah, sort of like looking at the glass at half full and forgetting that you've drunk the first half of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to live in the present because the present because that's where we are. We have jobs and relationships and other family members or children and relationships with friends that we want to work with and be happy with, that we have friends, that we have these relationships. But if we're always living in the past, some of our friends don't want to live in the past because mm-hmm. they're still in the present, and that's where we need to be. Great point. Let's talk about one of those other difficult areas in the little time that we've got left. You mentioned things, things that remind us of the other person, whether it's a ring or whether it's their own possessions. Maybe it's a child and they had their own bedroom. Their things are still in that room. Uh, how does someone deal with possessions 
that were attached with a person that they've lost? That's really a good question because the personal things I dealt with earlier or close to two, my wife, late wife's death, and things that I'm going to be dealing with next year as into some furniture and possessions. But I'll point out one thing. It was her pocketbooks. You know, she always carried a pocketbook. She'd mm-hmm. throw her things in there, and I could see her, like, throwing the things in there. She was a smoker, but a light smoker. She would take the cellophane out the back and put it in the um, pocketbook. So it was about a couple to three years after her death when I decided to tackle the closet in there with these pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. And I started opening them up, what was in them. After the third one, I had to stop because the pain of the memories about who she was and her actions was so real and the pain of her loss that I had to stop. Hmm. Then I stopped for probably a year. And I got further away, less emotional. It's like, okay, I can deal with these now. Her clothes, I had to deal with those. It's like, it took me a couple of years before I could deal with them. But I donated them to an organization that was helping women get back into the workforce. Tremendous. To help help other people. Let's do that because it doesn't make sense to throw things away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those type of things, we have to remember them, but get a further, further enough away that they don't have the emotional impact that they once had, and then we can deal with them. Great message. Well, Rich, our time has uh, pretty much slipped away from us. Uh, maybe a closing uh, message, a, a final take-home thought for us. Well, I think one thing would be that there are very creative ways to express grief, as in writing or dancing or art, and that a grieving person can help themselves by working through it, accepting it as part of who they are, as new knowledge, and live in the present and be there for life. Tremendous messages. Rich, thank you so much. One more time, if you're interested in connecting with Rich or getting some of his uh, excellent resources, you can go to richardballo.com. That's richardballo, B-A-L-L-O.com. Well, that's all the time that we have. Rich, again, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, David, for having me on. I truly enjoyed it. And for all of you that have joined us today, hopefully today's show has made a difference in your own life. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.